Did you ever play with a flip book? You strolled through them. A series of images became a motion of pictures. I haven't seen one in years, but I used to love them. I used to sometimes take them slow or fast, and they just mesmerized me. And in some ways, a flip book is also a metaphor for life. If you had a picture of every moment you've spent and put it in motion, your journey through time would unfold. But what fascinates me is that book wouldn't be linear. Occasionally, a cause, a dream, or even a nightmare would send you down a new path with different circumstances and usually a new cast of characters. Would your life grow or shrink as it happens? Would you feel certainty and security or uncertainty and insecurity? Would you become a better human being or would you sometimes compromise your values because the chase or ambition blinded you? And what about your motivations? How far were you willing to travel to find safety and security? Love, a sense of belonging. Did the magnetism of your passions or the calling of a higher purpose pull you in different directions or let you climb what seemed to be insurmountable mountains? Did one day your desire to find the meaning of your life circumvent all? And for many, that's what Chatter That Matters is all about. It's an audio version of a flipbook where I discover how someone has overcome these circumstances. They, they escape or chase, and in doing so, they change their world and even ours for the better. Uh, the word resilience is, uh, is the one I hear most. When you've grown up in, in that kind of an environment, done all the hard work and uh, paid attention to the basics, because when you're out there in the jungles, you have to keep your eyes open. It focuses the mind, builds character. That's really what I've taken with me on this entire journey. Today, we're going to flip through the life of Patrick Asari. He's written a book with so many beautiful pictures taken from his incredible memoir, The Boy from Boadua, One African's Journey of Hunger and Sacrifice in Pursuit of a Dream. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Patrick Asari, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much, Tony. <laughs> Thank you. And take us back to where your story begins in the jungles of Ghana. T- just talk to us about your family, how you lived, and what you did to survive. I was born in this uh, small village, a uh, very small, dusty village in Ghana, a uh, small country in West Africa. I was born one of 14 children to uh, two illiterate parents that lived in this village. My father was a subsistence farmer. And my mother was a homemaker, uh, home taking care of uh, 14 children in this uh, small house. And uh, this is a mud house. And uh, I went around the, uh, the the small village and everything around you was brown. Nothing was paved. And so uh, there's dust everywhere. And um, most most people uh, made a living, uh, eked out a living out of subsistence farming. And so poverty was the, uh, the defining feature of this place. So that's... Uh, that was a life uh, for everyone in this village. How could your dad working in these conditions and your mom ever manage to feed 14 children? That was a difficulty, uh, really, uh, because subsistence farming is not uh, like mechanized farming in the developed world where you have a small plot of land and you can grow a lot of food. So, so you, you were... Uh, the mercy of the weather in uh, West Africa, not much rainfall for most of the year. So your, your crops were very limited. And so my father with a small plot of land uh, couldn't grow enough food uh, to feed the family. So we, food was constantly rationed. And so uh, we pretty much uh, rationed food and were hungry most of the time. And I did a lot of work for a, a global charity called Global Citizens. And one of the things they talk about is this the lack of hygiene 
open defecation, not having proper sanitation. Was that something you experienced as well? Because that often manifests itself into horrific health issues. No house in this village when I was growing up that had indoor plumbing. You talk about open defecation. That was, that was really how people uh, relieve themselves. And so, and so you found, uh, you found, uh, human waste everywhere. People went out into the uh, bushes and, uh, did their business there, but, uh, urination, actually right in the first chapter of the book about the, the constant smell of urine in, in the village. I mean, it was, it was pretty pungent. And so hygiene was, uh, was was a problem. And your village, though, wasn't that far away from a British-owned diamond mining company. Did you notice the difference between how you lived and what was happening there with, you know, these foreign powers coming in and moving into the dirt and taking away the diamonds? They had built a small township. It, it looked, uh, we, we walked uh, around the place uh, sometimes. I mean, you couldn't go into the township because... Uh, it, it was uh, fenced off and uh, not, not physically fenced off, but uh, you, you knew you couldn't go in there. And uh, this was in stark contrast to the village where everything was brown. I mean, this place was green. I mean, lush green. And uh, this place had swimming pools. They had paved roads. I mean, they had uh, beautiful schools and stores and uh, everything. So they, they, it, was, uh, it was Western European uh, sort of environment, uh, right next to, uh, uh, our medieval village. And so. And talk to me about schooling because we're going to get into your, your incredible against all odds educational journey. But at the time, sort of most of education was sort of just primary school. Yes. And often at the objection of parents because they needed you to help make money or work and do chores. About 99% of the parents in this village were were illiterate, just my like, uh, just like my parents, and so education was really not anyone's priority. Uh, uh, you imagine everyone uh, trying to make a living out of subsistence farming, so labor was uh, quite important, and so that was a reason uh, many families had uh, that many children. Uh, I think my family had uh, probably the most, one of the most children, but uh, average family size was quite large, and so. Uh, these parents who had no, you know, idea about the importance of education. I mean, they were more interested in putting their kids on farms. I mean, to work, and uh, and so that was a life for children in this village. And you know, we I talked about earlier these moments and times where life changes. And I, when I read this trusty old right hand to left ear test, <laughs> I explained to the listeners <laughs> what that is and how that, in fact. Change your life again uh, because of illiteracy. Uh, children born in this village, um, in 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 America, in uh, in in the Western world, in any developed country nowadays, even in Ghana nowadays. I mean, children have uh, dates of birth. Uh, their their births are recorded. But back in those days, um, such records were not really uh, kept. I mean, not many people bothered to keep these records. So, so kids uh, walked around the village and uh, they reached uh, school going age, but no, nobody knew uh, who was qualified, you know, to enroll. And so uh, the teachers in the village, the only thing they, they had to rely on was, uh, the, you know, the size, your, your height. Basically, they used the height of a kid. I mean, to, to figure out, you know, when they were ready to go to school. And so, 
uh, this right arm, right hand to left ear test uh, was um, was used. And so you're walking, you're a kid walking around the village and someone, adult uh, teacher would uh, come up on you and uh, and say, hey, raise your right arm and uh, bend it over your, your head and try to touch your left ear. If you manage to do that, they said, okay, you're good enough to, uh, <laughs> to, to go to uh, kindergarten or, or uh, first grade. I was lucky. My family house was uh, close to the Presbyterian uh, primary school in the village. And so I used to go to uh, to the playground. I mean, they had this dusty playground that uh, there was nothing there. So kids uh, recessed, they would come out and play. And so when I was about four years old, I started going to that uh, place. Uh, a family friend, he walked up to me. He saw me playing with the kids, the school kids. And he walked up to me and he said, Oh, uh, you know, uh, put your put your right hand and uh, uh, on top of your head and uh, and and try to touch your left ear. I, I was a, a a bit of a tall, sort of scrawny kid, and so and so I did the test and I passed it in in, in the eyes of this man. And so he said, "Oh, you're ready to go to school. I'll I'll uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell the teachers and your dad." And and, and so that's how I uh, that's how I got enrolled in kindergarten. <laughs> you describe in your book, kindergarten was really just a place underneath the tree and was was weather weather related. That you know, like the game of golf. If it's raining, you can't play. In your case, if you had bad weather, you couldn't go to school. Exactly. And then when you move into the sort of the primary grades, you said you got to go indoors, but it's not the type of school that the Western world would consider, you know, set up for education. So a funny story about kindergarten. So we, we sit under these trees and, uh, you know, West Africa, you have goats and chickens and uh, everything roaming around you. So uh, for the longest time, I was about five years old. For the longest time, I, I thought the goats were our classmates, really, because, <laughs> because the, uh, when the teacher was, uh, you know, talking, he has an easel uh, under the tree and a uh, chalkboard. And uh, so the, these goats will, will, you know, Stand very still and uh, and watch what the teacher was doing. So and uh, and then at some point they will just walk off. And so, uh, but then moving on to uh, to first grade into into a classroom, as you say, I mean this was just uh, this was just a block of um, a building block with uh, six rooms. It, it was open, uh, short walls, and he went into uh, he went into one of these uh, rooms, and all there was was a chalkboard, uh, a chair for the teacher to sit on. We actually, there were no chairs and tables uh, like you have in your classrooms uh, here. We actually had to bring our own chairs from home. I mean, to to sit. So this was a bare, empty room with nothing. I mean, there was nothing there, and uh, that was it. How did they know you were gifted? Because the way I, I read it through the book, you very soon go from just being able to touch your your ear to really being someone that just loves to learn. Was there a moment when a teacher just looked at you and realized that, you know, this wasn't just, I'm going to give you a couple of years of reading, and then you're going to go back and, and continue this cycle of poverty, but they saw something in you? Actually, not immediately. Um, so so every kid, I mean, just walked in there and you learned the alphabet and uh, they taught you one to 10, how to count to one to 10. Uh, that was very basic stuff. But Starting about age eight, I realized that I, uh, I, I love to read. There was just, uh, 
Uh, they will give you uh, one English book, uh, a textbook, and uh, another one for math, and that was that was it. But I developed a love of reading, a- and so I, I started getting more and more into into school stuff. And that's when my teachers discovered that I, uh, you know, th- th- this is a kid who who could probably learn. And what I found so fascinating, and I would have to say even tragic about it, is there was another individual in that school, Francis, who also had this intellectual capability. And he comes back through your book more than once. It's almost, and sometimes I feel like you're guilty that you left him behind because you realize that this is your path out and this is your path for their future. And even though he has the same intellectual capabilities, his heart doesn't roar the same way. You must have thought of that a million times in your life, why you are where you are. And Francis ended up staying back in that village. And I talk a lot about him in the book uh, purposely, because the way his life turned out really informs the way I view the world. And he was actually a better student than I was, but somehow the same level of passion that I had, uh, I mean, to sort of force myself out of that village and to, and to go on and uh, pursue a, additional education beyond primary and middle. Most, most kids, uh, ended at primary school level, uh, about half went on to middle school. Middle school was a stopping point. I mean, for pretty much every kid in the village. But, but along the way, I decided that I wanted more and I, I had this passion that uh, just kept me going. I love the story. You're 11 years old. Uh, you got this insatiable appetite for reading. It's not like there's a library and there's scraps of newspaper on the floor of a village square. And one day you pick up this newspaper and you start reading something that eventually changes your educational trajectory. So uh, food vendors in the in this village, uh, street side food vendors, uh, uh, they, they, were, they didn't have plates or whatever. So they, they would just rip up uh, old newspapers and uh, wrap the food that people. So you, you went to buy bread or roasted plantain to wrap it up in, uh, in a piece of newspaper and people finish eating and they just uh, discard it. And uh, so you, you see these uh, scraps uh, lying around and uh, going back to uh, uh, me having this, uh, uh, you know, likeness for words on paper. So I, I, uh, I used to go around the village uh, picking up these scraps of newspaper and uh, reading what was on them. So one day I pick one of these scraps and there is a segment of an article uh, about the most exclusive secondary school in the country. We talk about the diamond mining company and the expatriates. Uh, who came from England and uh, Europe to to work there? Uh, so, so this exclusive secondary school was set up uh, actually during colonial times. It was set up by the uh, the colonial governors of Ghana when uh, Britain Britain used to uh, uh, rule Ghana. So they, they set the school up uh, to educate uh, children of the colonial governors, uh, ambassadors, university professors, and then kids who went uh, to this secondary school. Then went on to uh, Oxford and Cambridge universities in England, and then they returned to Ghana and became the prime ministers, the presidents, ambassadors. And so I was about, uh, you know, 10, 11 years old. I pick up this paper and read this thing and I say, wow, I mean, uh, um, I want to, I want to be, uh, I want to become one of these people. I mean, and so that sort of uh, mapped out. Uh, the path, I mean, for me. So I knew that, uh, going to this exclusive secondary school, uh, would, uh, 
could eventually get me to uh, Oxford and Cambridge, and then and then I would come back to Ghana and become uh, a big person. I mean, absolutely insane idea for a kid. I mean, standing in that dusty village to even have. But what I found was fascinating because a lot of people, especially in these circumstances, would just roll their eyes. You know, it's like a kid under a tree looking up at the stars, saying, "I'm going to go to the moon one day." But you somehow get the principals and teachers and the village behind you. You become. Almost a role model. Like, and it must have been one of the first times this village said, there is a path out of here, at least with education. Everybody gets behind you and they're cheering you on. And you actually run this incredible gauntlet to the point where this school that really was never set up for someone like you opens their doors and saying, you're welcome to come here. But then you get hit with some pretty tough news. This whole journey uh, to to gain admission to this exclusive school from that village I was standing in was, was quite a, a challenge, and so I had to give up uh, my breakfast money uh, to to buy newspapers to read because at that point I, I had to do real reading to stand any chance of uh, getting admission. So so I went to school without breakfast uh, pretty much every day for for two years. And then you are studying late into the night with kerosene lamps. The village had no electricity. And so it was sleepless nights. And I, I was doing all that without even the knowledge of my parents and the teachers. I mean, they, my parents saw I was doing this crazy midnight stuff. And I didn't know. so, so I, I actually take the exam, the entrance exam and uh, apply to the school and I get my admission letter before, before I start talking to anybody about this insane dream that I had. And, uh, so that's, that's when the teachers were like, what just happened? <laughs> and, uh, and so they grab me and they take me home. I mean, they, they, you know, they ask my parents, do you know what your son has done? And, <laughs> and so, and so it becomes a big news in the village. And then I get, uh, admitted. And that's, um, when, uh, disaster strikes. I mean, I, I come back home and, uh, you know, get it with my admission letter and, uh, and my parents, I, I didn't, know really what poverty uh, meant. <laughs> um, I, I knew, you know, I somehow knew we're not uh, that well off because we're going hungry and we're struggling all the time. But that was the uh, first time I, I, you know, heard poverty and um, uh, financial sort of obstacles. So, so there was no chance my parents, uh, were going to afford, uh, be able to afford a tuition to this, to go to this place. So that, that was, uh, uh, that's what happened. So it, it, long and short of it, I, you know, I couldn't go and I had to give up, uh, this, uh, tremendous opportunity. You find out there's no money for this school. So what happens next? To say I was devastated uh, is, is would be an understatement, an understatement. So I was totally uh, sort of destroyed, and 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 so I, I say, you know, that what's the point then? So so I decided that I, I wasn't going to go back to the final year of middle school. I I I, I realized that maybe my place is on the farm, just like every kid in the village. And my, my parents realized that, you know, I've been dealt a devastating blow. So no one, no one really talked to me much, uh, in those days. Um, I was just, uh, in a, in a different zone. And so, and so I was walking around the village and, uh, school reopened and I, I, I look around and I said, all right, uh, if I'm not going to school, then what, what next? So, so I just, um, I just ultimately decided that, okay, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go back for the final year. Francis was, uh, Francis was there. 
Um, and so we, we had this incredible bond. I mean, we we're very, very close friends. He had actually taken the, the secondary school entrance exam the same year he had applied to a different school, um, a, a less prestigious school. And, uh, same story. His parents, uh, just didn't have any. And so he was going to go back to final year of middle school. So that, uh, I said, okay, uh, I'll just, I'll just go. I'll hang around with Francis and uh, we'll spend a year. And then after the year, we'll see what happens. And then you get into a, it's still a pretty good school in comparison. You go to, I think it's called Oda. Oda, yes. You're doing well there, but then you actually get to go back to your dream for your last couple of years. How did you feel walking into that? Because people have been there for years and all of a sudden you don't have cultural nuance. You don't understand the rhythm of the school. I mean, you must have felt like a square peg in a round hole. It's unlike anything. I'd been to Odin for five years, and uh, and so I had seen kids from uh, uh, you know other places who uh, uh, I felt that imposter syndrome even at Odin. But but Achimota, this exclusive school, was a whole other level. I mean, it's uh, Ivy League stuff. I mean, and uh, you know these kids. Uh, kids who vacation uh, abroad when when uh, you know the semester ends they fly to London uh, New York Paris and uh, so so this was a place my father uh, came one Saturday morning uh, to visit me I mean he, he knew the story back from when I was 11 when I first gained admission to this school and what my teachers had told him about this place and so when I eventually made it there for senior secondary school, I think out of curiosity, I mean, he really wanted to come and see this place that he had heard so much about. So back then there was no cell phones. I mean, we didn't have any phones at home, obviously. And so people, yeah, if someone was coming to visit you, they come unannounced. And so, and so I was in the dormitory one Saturday morning and someone uh, came to my room and said, uh, there's uh, someone looking for you. So, so I walk out uh, to, uh, a small uh, hall, and I see my father standing there in traditional uh, garb. <laughs> and uh, uh, most most parents, uh, every parent that came to visit the uh, the kid in this school was uh, in a suit. I mean, if they you know a lady, they were in uh, you know fancy clothes. And, and I see my father standing there in uh, in this village uh, traditional uh, thing, and, and I freeze. I mean, I I don't know what to do because I I was so embarrassed. <laughs> right? I had kept my low profile, not wanting every anyone on the campus, I mean, to know my socioeconomic background. And and here my father was, I mean, he was coming to blow this whole thing open and everyone was going to know. So I, you know, hurriedly, you know, shuttle him out of this, uh, you know, small hall and we walk out into the street and, um, and I show him a couple of places and and sort of rush him out of uh, rush him off the campus and uh, you know we we go to a taxi stop and he takes a taxi and he continues on to uh, on to Accra and I I had no idea what I had done and so it took many years uh, for me to actually uh, come to realize um, I I sort of knew. Uh, almost right away what, uh, what, what I had done. But, uh, it, you know, it was later that I realized I really did him, uh, a disservice. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what word to use, whether it's disrespect or, uh, failed him. Do you ever talk to him about it? No, I never got a chance to, uh, to talk to him about it. I, uh, when I came to this realization, uh, I was in the Soviet Union at the time. Actually, actually was my first uh, years in America when I came to America 
and uh you know became familiar with the culture and uh and and things like that when it it hit me and um i never had the opportunity to talk to him so so that's one of my regrets and uh, you know we we just added two new chapters to your book soviet union in the states which we'll get to in a second but my last question when you're in that school instead of being championed as against all odds did you ever feel you're bullied or was there racism or was there just uh people just wanted nothing to do with you because you're this village urchin i actually kept to myself <laughs> mostly as a as a, as an advanced uh, secondary school student uh, senior secondary school student uh the, the good um uh news there was uh, i had a i had a room to myself uh yeah, they they had rooms that, that that's how exclusive the school was uh, and so most of the time it was it was class to get out of the room to go to class and go to the dining hall and come back to the room because uh, for the reason was I could not relate to anyone on that on that campus. I mean, there, there was nothing I could talk to anyone about. I mean, these were people who vacationed in uh, uh, Europe and America and uh, you know other places, and I was always on the farm. So there, there were there were no common uh, topics of interest that I could actually carry a conversation. So that that was uh, I was uh, sort of uh, isolated from everyone, and and because I was a senior uh, student, I was uh, uh, in the senior years uh you know no one could bully me i mean if i if i had gone there maybe uh for you know basic secondary school i've been a different uh, story but but because i was so isolated from everyone i just i just kept to myself on the, on the campus it's tony chapman when we return patrick's journey goes from love to loss and from drought to deep lessons in life we'll then be joined by jody wright from rbc And she'll talk about finding financial comfort during these challenging days. It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipsos survey, sponsored by RBC Royal Trust, reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royaltrust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and to RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. The, the bar is the bar. I mean, we're going to set it where it is. When you are in that home environment where low expectations are accepted, right? You see what you see. But I had parents, I mean, who, who looked at life, you know, differently. I mean, we're going to raise the bar. I'm joined today by Patrick Asari. He's written this incredible book, The Boy... From Boadua, it's an African's journey of hunger and sacrifice in the pursuit of a dream. So we're going to move the story along. You graduate, you get into the Science and Technology University in Ghana. You meet Patricia, the love of your life, and everything seems to be going well. But as you talk about Western Africa, my my wife is from South Africa. I mean, another drought hits, food scarce. Uh, you can barely focus on class, and you end up in the Soviet Union. So if you're thinking this analogy of a flip book. That's a, that's a pretty big change from the, the village making your way to this incredible school, the university. How did the Soviet Union come about? So, yeah, I, as you mentioned, I, I had uh, from secondary school, I gained admission to the uh, Science and Technology uh, University in Ghana, which is uh, one of the top. Uh, uh, there were three universities in Ghana at the time, and that was, uh, uh, that was one of the top ones. I had been admitted to uh, study electrical engineering. 
And, um, and so I go to this campus and, uh, that was, uh, 1982, late 1982. And a drought, uh, has hit Ghana and the whole West African region. And so you talk about subsistence farmers, uh, depending on rain and stuff. And so food was, uh, very scarce and uh, whatever little was available was very expensive. And so families like mine didn't have the money to, uh, and so there was hunger everywhere and, uh, uh, to go study electrical engineering uh, at a university that cannot provide you uh, three meals a day. So, so on average, we're getting about a meal a day on uh, on campus. And I said this this wasn't going to uh, work. And so, and so it was back to uh, back home, and I, I came back to the farm. And I'm on the farm for for another couple of years. And um, in, in the meantime, I'm looking around to see what else, you know, I can do. There is no job. There is no food. There is nothing. And, and so I, I knew about this um, after, the, after Ghana gained independence from, uh, from Britain in 1957. Uh, the Cold War was uh, raging at the time. And so most African countries were – America and the Soviet Union were – uh, all of Africa jockeying for influence. So the, 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 a bunch of African countries sort of aligned themselves with the Soviet Union post independence. And, um, the president of Ghana at the time, who, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, who, uh, was the, uh, struggle, who, who led the struggle for independence, he, he somewhat aligned himself with the Soviet Union. So the, 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 there was this whole exchange program. Uh, government to government program that to young people in their early twenties, uh, from Ghana to the Soviet Union to go to college. And I think the whole idea was to get people, uh, sort of, uh, introduced, uh, to socialism. And then, uh, after their studies, they come back, you know, to their home countries and, and sort of they become sympathetic to, uh, so, so that was a whole idea behind the program. So people had very, you know, low views about, uh, that. Kind of education because the, the, the idea was they were taking you there to basically in, indoctrinate you. And so, and so the, that certificate, uh, was not very well respected. I, I don't know whether that was, uh, uh, you know, valid or not, but that, that is what I had heard. But at that point, uh, with a drought and hunger and everything, I, I had no other options. And so I, hey, I said, Hey, let me look into this, uh, other options. So, you know, what do I have to lose? So, so I go and, and at that point, unfortunately, it had become very, very competitive because, uh, other people, uh, were just jumping into that queue. So, so again, I, I was lucky to, um, to get one of those scholarships. And that's what, uh, took me to the Soviet Union. You leave this prestigious school, you go on to university, then you have to come back to the farm for two years. How small did that farm seem in that village seem, given you'd started to have a taste of the world? Having been to uh, these places, uh, it's almost like uh, you, you, you are in, uh, in, in, you know, a deep jungle in, uh, in Africa and, and you found yourself in, in London or New York. That, that's the contrast because uh, that, that was what these environments, especially at Chimota, that exclusive secondary school, this was a school with, uh, I mean, lush green areas. I mean, it has swimming pools. It had a golf course. I mean, it had everything. It had a hospital. This is, uh, these are different worlds. And so uh, to, to your point, I mean, to come back, 
to this farm in the middle of a jungle with nothing, uh, no plumbing, no nothing. It, it was, um, you, you get to a point where you, you, you begin to question yourself. I mean, is this, is this my place? Um, is this supposed to be my place all along? And, uh, you talk about imposter syndrome. How did the village people relate? Were you like now trying to be so self-important because you'd been away and you could tell stories about it and they just sort of, because in some ways you are, what they're not. And that very often in society, that's not necessarily welcomed. I was from a poor family. And, and, and that's one thing that has never changed with me, even after all these years. I mean, the village has never left me. And so, and so even after being on those uh, elite campuses, and uh, whenever I came back to the village, I, uh, Francis was always there. Uh, he never, he never left. And so whenever I came to the village, I mean, I was always with him. And, uh, I, I related to everyone in the village. I mean, the way I did when I was in middle school. And, um, and the other reason was, uh, no, but no one in the village could even understand anything, you know, I would say anyway, if I started talking about, uh, the campus and what we did there. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't understand anything. So there was no point in even, uh, trying to do, uh, you know, talk like that or act like that. And you go to the Soviet Union, are you going at least with like-minded people, other people from Africa? So at least you have equivalent of a Francis to rely on, but it must have been another completely different landscape where Soviet Union at the height, you know, of the Cold Wars, I mean, at least the way it's projected to the Western world, wasn't necessarily a colorful place. No, not at all. They're very drab and, uh, yeah, quite dull. And uh, when I first, uh, my, my flight uh, going to the Soviet Union, uh, it landed in Moscow. And then there was, there was an interpreter at the airport, I mean, to pick you up because everyone in the Soviet Union at the time spoke only Russian. I mean, it was a, it was a closed place. No no one was allowed to uh, travel. And so the, the only foreigners you would see were the students like myself and uh, the the diplomats. And, uh, so that wasn't, and so, uh, you go, you get to this place and, uh, you know, they pick you up from the airport and they send you to a hotel. Uh, everything is, is new. I mean, I hadn't been to, uh, Western Europe at a time. And so I, I went from Ghana to, to, to this place and, um, it, it was a culture shock. I mean, uh, um, everything is different. Uh, people look different. Uh, the language is different. Uh, food is different. Everything is different. How old were you then, Patrick, when you were there? I was 23. I was 23. Then you hear some, ba- it was when you were in the Soviet Union, we hear about your dad's passing. Yes. Yes. You know, in the book, I realized how important he has been in terms of your value system. I've never left the village. And that sent you in a pretty dark place. I spent uh, six years altogether in the Soviet Union. Uh, you, you get there and they put you, the first year is, uh, is language school. So I was sent to Kiev, uh, to, to study, to, to study the language. So he studied the language for a four year until you're pro- proficient enough to, uh, to go to, uh, uh, the university to study whatever you, you, you came to major in. So, so I was in Donetsk, uh, was about two months away from graduation. So I, I'd spent six years and I had been back to Ghana. Um, a couple of times to visit. Um, and, and so my last visit to Ghana, my father was 81 years old at the time and, uh, he had worked in the, in, on the farm. I mean, throughout that time. And, uh, my idea at the point was, um, 
now I'm going to be an electrical engineer. I uh, I'll come back to Ghana and um, uh, find a job, and then I'll get into retire from the farm because he had uh, broken his back. I mean, for for me and my thirteen siblings, my father made the most difference in my life because. You talk about the passion and the drive that carried me from the village. I mean, I learned that from him. Uh, he had this relentless work ethic and never took no for an answer. I mean, he, he took charge of his, uh, of his life and his family because he, he didn't have to do, uh, what he did. I mean, the expectations in the village, I mean, parents, you know, didn't really bother to take care of their children, you know. Uh, but he took responsibility and, um, you know, he taught me, uh, the values of hard work and discipline and, uh, sacrifice to have this idea that I wanted to come back and, uh, get him to retire from the farm and reward him for everything he had done for me and my siblings and, uh, and the entire family. And then I, I come back, uh, about, a few weeks before graduation, uh, to do, uh, to search for a job in Ghana. And I land in Ghana and I hear that, uh, he's, uh, passed away. And, uh, that was, that was, uh, <laughs> that, that was, that was quite a blow. And so, and so again, um, the, the whole world, uh, went dark for me. Have you ever looked at your life? As if it's not you, because I read, I mean, I just saw this roller coaster of ups and downs and dark places. And every time people are trying to pull you back, though, or you're even questioning, should I keep moving forward? You do. And then you end up in the United States. You've had an extraordinary life in the States. But what I was particularly interested in is context, that how you see the world, because you've had a lens on in so many different places marginalized communities, education, cycle of poverty. And I thought we'd just close out, you know, because I don't want to give away the entire book. I'm going to put it in. And I'm going to encourage people to read it because it's such an inspirational story of a human journey, but you're almost a philosopher now. So just tell us what you've learned about life. I mean, what are the three lessons that you could share with us that we could all put in our knapsack that Patrick taught us? And thank you for those very kind words. <laughs> So the number one lesson, uh, I would say is, um, believe in yourself as a person. Uh, we are all born, uh, with, with, with certain gifts. I mean, they may not be obvious. I mean, to, to us or to other people around us, but, you know, have faith in your, in yourself because, uh, when I started this whole journey, when I picked up that scrap of newspaper and read this thing on it, I mean, I, w I was clueless. I mean, the, the idea I got was insane. And, uh, and, and the best thing that happened to me was I didn't tell anyone. I couldn't tell anyone because no one would understand in the village. And so, and so to have that faith in yourself that uh, you, you have a dream and, uh, something occurs to you and, uh, you, you, you want to do it. Uh, you have a, a passion for it. Just, uh, just, just keep on doing it. You're going to hit um, a series of roadblocks like I did, but just uh, just keep going because unless unless uh, you you absolutely know that you've reached uh, you know a dead end where it's over. I mean, it's like a soccer game. I mean, uh, you know, the referee blows, blows the whistle after ninety minutes or ninety plus uh, extra minutes, and uh, the game is over. If you know the game is over, then it's go then it's over. But in life, in life, the whistle never blows until you are dead. <laughs> so, and number two, uh, stay away from naysayers. Um, I would say stay away from naysayers because 
there have been many, many uh, points in my life where uh, people told me, uh, don't do this, don't go here, don't do... And fortunately for me, I had learned enough um, to know that, you know, people, we, we, we are all, you know, humans and our knowledge is limited. Our knowledge of life and the world is limited. I mean, we can only see uh, maybe five yards in front of us, but nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And then the third one is be very curious and be very open to everyone. Um, we, we live in a world where, uh, so many divisions, uh, uh, you know, racial, religious, um, you know, ethnic and this be open to everyone and be curious, be deeply curious because I have traveled from a very small village in Ghana, uh, to the Soviet Union of all places and then to America, which is a melting pot with, uh, everyone here. The, the one thing I've learned is, you know, people are people. I mean, regardless of color, religion. And so when you open up, I mean, to people, uh, you're going to pick up valuable pieces of knowledge and you're going to get help in unexpected places. So that openness to, uh, to people of all backgrounds, I mean, to me is, is critically important. You know, Patrick, I, I always end my show with my three lessons, but you've just given them believe in yourself. Stay away from naysayers and be curious. But I want to leave you with my thoughts about you because your book absolutely moved me. And I think that for most of your early stages in your life, you were very alone. Even in that village reading newspapers, you were alone. You had Francis, but you had something roaring in your heart that no one else had. And then you go off to both schools and very often I kept to myself. I stayed in my dormitory. I mean, you found love in university, so you started to, I'm sure, feel a little bit less. But next thing you know, you're back at the farm and you have something that no one else has. You know what the world's like out there. It's almost like a medieval village where the storyteller comes. and But you can't even share those stories because people won't understand. And as you said, you know, I, I never let the village leave me. I mean, this humility and grace that says, I'm not going to come in there and be self-important. I'm going to be w- who I always am. And then the final thing is that is probably the lesson that I will take away from your and it's so funny the way you write the story, but is you've always made your destiny a matter of choice, not chance. And even though people have held on to your back and tried to pull you back into the cement, and I have to imagine that even Francis, every time you came back and you shared what you were doing, and he just didn't have the strength to put that hand on the rung and climb up, but at least he got to live vicariously through you. So for all of that and more, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that people read your book because it is a book about putting the human in humanity. That to me is is a journey that you're only just begun. And I can't wait to interview you in 10 years and see what Patrick, where Patrick is going next. <laughs> Who knows? You might be walking to the Antarctica. I don't know. But I, I just, I thank you so much for being on Chatter That Matters. Tony, uh, thank you so very much. Joining me for the first time on Chatter That Matters is Jody Wright. She's the Senior Director at Youth and Young Adult Client Segment Strategies at RBC. Jody, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Tony. You, that could be one of the longest titles I've ever had on this. So what, what does the Senior Director of Youth and Young Adult Client <laughs> Segment Strategies do and how big is your business card? It's funny. I um 
I often get teased by titles. I think that it's like a bank thing to have really complicated titles because everyone needs to know exactly what you do within your title. Um, but the easiest way of thinking of it is, you know, how do we help our clients who are in the category from an age perspective of youth and young adults. And, you know, we kind of loosely categorize those as, as essentially the under 25. So, you know, individuals who are, um, you know, newly starting out in their financial journey, shall we say. And, you know, they might be looking at our Leo's Young Savers account and they would working, be working with their parents and setting up, um, you know, having a bank account and putting in their allowance and tooth fairy money or whatnot you know, through high school students, post-secondary students, international students, and then young adults who might be newly graduated and, um, you know, starting to get into the realm of, of managing their own finances. Today, I want to talk about Patrick Cassar. It's a moving story. He broke the cycle of poverty through determination and education. He decided that the only way out of a world where people were as close to being servants was to learn his way through it. Where do we have to take this country? Because to me, where Patrick needed the basic math and writing and reading to do it, I would say a lot of Canadians who have the basic education could do so much more of their life if they had financial literacy, if they could make smart decisions versus, I would say, sometimes impulsive decisions. I think we are making strides. You know, when I compare to um, even myself growing up, when I think about how money was not really things, stuff that you really talked about with with your friends or with your family. And I believe that things are shifting, that we're trying to normalize discussions about money and not make it taboo. Um, and I think that that's a, a really important start because it means that people will be more, at least I hope, inclined to acknowledge what they, what they know and what they don't know and seek out information, seek out help, um, be, be willing and able to talk to their friends, their family, um, individuals who are, you know, have that, that credibility to provide that advice as well. So like financial advisors, financial planners, you know, when I think about in particular the younger generation and so, you know, Gen Z as an example, you know, we are finding that they're a much more curious generation and that they are more inclined than their slightly older generations to actually want to find out more about about finances. And, and I think that part of it is that sort of the democratization of it, if you will. You know, there's more on social media. You've got influencers who focus specifically on financial literacy on Finlet, and they can make it kind of fun and cool and digestible. And, you know, we're trying to do a lot of that as well, not through the influencers, but by having a, a go-to section of our website where people can, on their own time, read about um, all sorts of different areas that that matter to them, depending on what they're at, where they're at in their life stage. There's lots of great tools and calculators. And it kind of just starts there. And at the same time, the opposite is true too, right? Like if you are someone who gets caught into that cycle of debt and you've got credit card debt with super high interest rates, it's, it's so hard to get out of it. Uh, and so we need to help set that foundation at a younger age and ensure that people are, are aware and are knowledgeable about how things work so that they can both put their money um, to work in a way that's the most productive and effective for them 
and also not get trapped in this sort of debt spiral. Patrick came from a very marginalized community, but he's not an anomaly. Canada, I hear up to 40% are living paycheck to paycheck. One in 10 families are relying on food banks. So I have to believe that money and the concept of money is not a happy thing in these places, that there's tension involved. How do you get them to realize that money is the root of all evil, but in fact, financial literacy might be the path to escaping the situation they're in. It's a sad reality that exists right now that I'm I'm really optimistic that we'll be able to to get out of. And I think that it requires a collective effort, um, both from you know our governments, from our education system, from our our financial institutions, um, and from individuals as well. And I'm I'm hoping that as you know, individuals kind of age up and we're able to break down some of those taboos around speaking about money, that people will seek the help that they need and the education that they need in order to, to build up the skills, um, and, and that financial literacy so that they can get out of that cycle of poverty. And that's easier said than done. And I'm not, I'm not pretending that, you know, by having that financial literacy, um, it's, it's going to be a magic wand or anything like that. But speaking of skills, it's, there needs to be an also a recognition of how can I build up my own skills to, um, to have a, have a job and have a meaningful career that is going to give me the, the income or an increased income that I need in order to be able to, to get out of that cycle. So I think it kind of it becomes a, a, a two part. And I love how, you know, here at RBC, we, we have RBC future launch, which really is geared towards supporting youth for the jobs of the future. And what are those skills that, that they need? And how to identify the gaps that they might have so that they can really find that fulfilling work that, that delivers from a financial perspective. So you combine that with a, an increase in financial literacy and an understanding of, of what that all means. Cause I think it's easy for us to sit here and just say financial literacy, but we need to really kind of dig, dig deeper and talk about, well, what are we talking about here? So that's, that's debt management. It's how to find, um, or create a budget rather and, and stick to it. It's, you know, investing and, and investing, you can start small, but if you set up that discipline, you have like a pre-authorized contribution plan and you're able to actually save and put money away, um, identifying the difference between wants and needs, you know, it's, it's things that we can start basic that really end up becoming those building blocks and, and lead to that, uh, a positive relationship with money and one that you're able to talk about in a productive way. If I walked in an RBC with a, a fistful of crumpled bills and my T4 slip said I work part-time at Tim Hortons, would advisors see me? Oh, absolutely. It, isn't that something we should really be encouraging people? Because there's no charge to doing that. It's just having people go in and build a relationship with someone that they feel are in their corner and maybe as you said start that path towards a little bit of saving more budgeting being much more honest about what our wants and needs it is it can be intimidating to um walk in somewhere and say i don't know what i don't know and i need some help and so we really try to foster a an open environment that will allow that conversation to happen. Jody Wright, you must have been one incredible financial planner, but I think uh, there's a lot of people that are benefiting from the fact that you're you're touching the youth segment at RBC, and I, I thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. 
It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening, and let's chat soon. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I ask Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried, and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC.